0: At this time, our students are dismissed to their classes. And if I could invite those who are sitting, if you wouldn't mind standing in uh, honor of the reading of God's word, we are, for the message, we are in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 this morning, but our scripture reading, which is a perfect intro to it, is found in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, beginning at verse 12, beloved, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for the judgment, for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have your seats. Let's pray. Be gracious to us, O Lord, according to your steadfast love and your mercy. We ask, Father, that you would strengthen your church. You would strengthen our faith in Christ, strengthen our commitment to the gospel. Strengthen us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Strengthen us to walk in a manner worthy of the hope to which we have been called, to which this great book of Revelation points. Father, we just ask that you would open our eyes to what the Spirit has to say to us this morning, that we would be humble, open, willing to listen to what Jesus, our King, our Judge, and Savior, has to say to us individually and corporately as a church. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Last week, we looked at Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, which is a grand, glorious vision of who Jesus is, Um, and it serves as kind of the cornerstone of the church, launching the whole set of visions of Revelation on the glory of who Christ is for his people. Beginning in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he is going to address seven churches, seven ancient first-century churches in what is modern-day Turkey, and he is going to assess them. In a manner of speaking, he's going to provide some report cards with some grades as to how these churches are doing. And I have to say that if I was a pastor of one of those first century churches, I would have been a little sobered, uh, indeed anxious about what I would read if I got a letter saying, to the angel of the church of Parkway, write. And yet at the same time, it should sober us to read these because God still speaks to our church, and to you and to me and the churches at large, um, through these seven letters that are really representatives of the church throughout the ages. And you're going to be surprised, maybe not surprised, but by how right on these letters are to the 21st century church and what we are finding ourselves in the context. If you think about churches like the seven, there's all different shapes and sizes, isn't there? For example, I can imagine in my mind's eye a small house church in North Korea, maybe 10 to 15 people, no amplification, no building of their own, no money in a bank account, maybe just a broken down guitar, and yet they meet each week to worship Christ. On the significance meter, we wouldn't consider a church like that to be all that influential and yet the church is excuse me the world is permeated with those kinds of churches especially in areas that are antagonistic towards Christianity just small small poor churches gathering in a house then you can imagine because some of us have attended churches like this or at least visited them old american mainline churches with their beautiful architecture stone building and spires and the bell tower i love seeing churches like that both outside and inside and yet Lord, knows, I've visited a number of them that just have a handful of people doing what seems like just mechanical worship. Churches that once used to be flourishing and and vital and now just just kind of a shell. And those churches are in our cities too. Then you have, at the other end of the spectrum, you have the, the progressive churches that is progressively liberal that are in touch with culture not just in touch with, but accommodate to culture and its values and its distinctives and are fully willing to embrace the rainbow flag to provide upbeat music, upbeat messages without ever referencing sin or judgment. Different kinds of churches. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you can imagine another church just a couple blocks down the road from the progressive church um, a church that culturally is a bit more militant, reacting to what they perceive to be a cultural devolution and kind of fostering a spirit of angry antagonism towards the enemies. On the extreme end, would burn books, carry signs, that use the word hate. Like these are modern expressions of the church, and I use that word church very loosely. They're all around us. We can see them on the TV, on the news. The question for us is, can any Christian church just do whatever it wishes? Um, who ultimately holds the church accountable? What's the difference between a healthy church and an unhealthy church? Well, Revelation 2 and 3 really is an answer to that. Because there is someone who ultimately holds the church accountable, and that is its Lord, its King, its Judge, and its Savior, Jesus Christ. As we saw last week, Jesus is pictured amongst the lampstands, which represent the church, there to care for, protect, and also correct, and if need be, remove. Remove. So Jesus is, in fact, amidst his church, and he will judge, correct, protect, care for. And these letters come from that kind of a care and concern and, and also a need to, if need be, condemn. So here you have these seven churches, these seven letters that address different situations and struggles and challenges within the church. Like I said, you're going to be amazed at just how modern these are. Now instead of doing this, let me just tell you where I'm going to go. I'm not going to do these sequentially, like I'll do first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, because you'd be here for three days. Rather, some of these churches are so similar that you can couple them together. So I have organized these four, or these, excuse me, these seven letters under four categories of struggle. If you will, four main problems or challenges that the church back then faced and the church today faces. So, four, so you know, problems. Before I get there though, let me just say this about the structure because it's important in terms of establishing motivation. Each of the letters begins and ends similarly. Uh, Each begins with a piece of the vision of the risen, glorified Christ from chapter one. So it begins with reminding us of who Jesus is, followed by commendation or approval, areas of strength, which is then followed by areas of criticism and encouragement, And then every one of the letters ends with this phrase. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, that's stated at the end of each one of the letters, which means each letter is to be considered by the churches. So this speaks beyond just the individual church. And then he says, To the one who conquers, or the one who overcomes, I will grant, and then there is a promise taken from the new creation. So, The point being that each letter begins with the glory of Christ and ends with a word of promise and hope to remind us that our conquering comes from a vision of who Jesus is and by the hope that's set before us. That is the motivational context of our conquering. It keeps it gospel focused. So with that said, first problem, Church of Ephesus, you're going to call this, Problem, the problem of loveless orthodoxy. Loveless orthodoxy. Now, Ephesus, as many of you know, was, was a privileged church. Privileged not only to have a letter written to it by the Apostle Paul, but also a place where Paul spent two years lecturing. So, can you imagine having Paul as your pastor for two years? And then tradition tells us that the Apostle John spent time there. There's, there's, an, there's ruins of an ancient church that were built in, his, built in his honor. So here you have two of the leading apostles as a pastor of your church. So it was a privileged church. They had been instructed in the ways of orthodoxy. That is sound teaching, sound doctrine. And this is what Jesus says about this privileged church at Ephesus. He says, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false i know you're enduring enduring patiently and bear up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary but i have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first the first part when he says, I know that you cannot bear with those who are evil. I believe what he's saying is you're holding the line in terms of orthodox morality. The way to walk, way not to walk. You're, you're holding the line. You were not caving into the pressures of culture, but you're holding the line. Orthodox morality, sound living. But then he goes on to talk about testing those who call themselves apostles. That is, they're testing their teaching, which means they held the line also in terms of orthodox doctrine or teaching. So gospel living and gospel teaching were being held and preserved. And Jesus says, that's a good thing. Orthodoxy is a good thing. Sound doctrine. Maintaining the shape of the gospel is a good thing and enduring in it. But, he says, you've abandoned the love that you had at first. That means when you came to Christ and you heard the gospel, you had a love for God, a love for each other, there was a graciousness, there was generosity, and there was patience and joy in your communal life. You're sharing with each other. The letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians, he acknowledges their love. In other words, at one point, it was a place that had a re- reputation for great love. He says... Chapter 1, he says, Therefore, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. He's like, you you have a love, and I give thanks for that. But their great strength of holding the line in terms of orthodox morality and orthodox doctrine had a dark side to it. That is, they lost their ability to love each other. And you can understand it. When, When you're in a fight to maintain truth. It's easy to become angry. It's easy to become suspicious, especially when you're trying to hold that line. You know, I I just picture people who easily, in the name of purity, can be so microscopic in trying to figure out, is is everybody acting like Christian around here? Maybe even felt uh, rigid and cold. Maybe people were policing each other in ways they shouldn't. And love kind of just disappears when that's the culture of the church, right? When you have one congregant, you know, lean over to another congregant and say, I heard Jimmy binged watched the whole Breaking Bad series, and I'm concerned for his soul. I think we need an intervention. At that point, when you're becoming obsessed with microscopic gray areas, well, then love disappears. And there's a sense of legalistic judgment, self-righteousness. Or, and the same is true in terms of theology. It's like, I know of certain contexts that if I said, I like Karl Barth, eyebrows would be raised. Don't you know that he's neo-orthodox? Yes, I do. I still like to read him. That kind of a, like a cold and oppressive environment where there's no generosity and there's no graciousness and there's no patience loses his ability to love each other. And that's a big deal, right? Paul said, if I, you know, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I am nothing. I am nothing. No to loveless orthodoxy, Jesus says. That's, that is a distortion of the gospel to live that way. But I think we can apply this even in a, in a broader level. As we continue to exist in a, in a world, and a society which continues to devolve, where the things that were once right are now wrong, it's very easy to take on a spirit of angry antagonism towards the lost world. We have to understand the lost world is the lost world. They can't see. Their understanding is darkened, Paul would say. They're blind. And that's no reason for us to not love them. I mean, Jesus said this, in effect. He predicted this would happen. When he said, and because of lawlessness, that is the increase of wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. And many in that context of Matthew 24 is in the church. And this is, this is not a good thing, Jesus says. So despite the fact that lawlessness increases... We can't lose our ability to love those around us, to show them what distinctive love is like, a love that uh, transcends whether or not they're part of your party or not, or a love that goes beyond the border of enemy and willingness to say, you're going to curse me and say bad things about me, but I'm still going to love you in return. We have to retain that love because Jesus is going to tell them, guess what? You need to repent. You need to own up to the fact that you have a cold-hearted orthodoxy. Yes, you've held the line, and that's good. But if there's no repentance, he says, then I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, go back. Now, this is a gracious thing. Jesus doesn't, doesn't just remove the lampstand. He's like, listen, I'm telling you this because I love you. And you need to return, repent, remember what you used to do, and do it again. I think this has something to say to the church. Why repent? Well, again, back to the motivation. Because Jesus is our King, our Judge, and our Savior, and the best is yet to come for us. That is the hope set before us. So that's the first Ephesians, loveless orthodoxy. Two, second struggle. I call this one a struggle instead of a problem because it's actually not a problem. The churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia, they struggle with poverty and powerlessness in the face of persecution. You'll notice this similarity between them to the church of Smyrna. And by the way, uh, these are the only two churches where nothing negative is said. They get all A pluses, Right? This is, this is good. These are the churches that, that kind of stand out from the seven. And it's a surprising standout. Look with me. Verse 9, to the church of Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but, as a, uh, but are a synagogue of Satan. So this is an impoverished church. They don't have a lot of uh, money resources. Philadelphia also is a church in a position of weakness. Chapter 3, verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And I believe what's behind that little image there is they they probably were excommunicated from their synagogue. Door was shut. And Jesus is saying here, they may have shut the door, but the door into the kingdom is wide open. It's not going to be shut for you. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And if you go on in verse 9, you'll realize that they too were persecuted by a local synagogue. So here you have two churches that share in common the fact that one has, is, is impoverished and the other is powerless. Perhaps small. Think North Korean house church of 10 to 15 And yet, in the face of persecution, they continue to trust in Christ, even to the point of death. Now, there's a lesson here for us, because we tend, right, to look on the outward appearances of things. We do. It's hard not to. These churches, if they were to exist today, we would probably not even give a second glance Because they're poor and powerless. Now, we tend to gravitate towards the rich and the powerful. Questions are often, so, how many people do you have on staff at church? Or, how much money do you spend in sound? And sound engineering and videography and all those things, all of which have their place and are good and so forth. Or what's your average attendance? How big is your building? These churches would boast of none of that. None of that. They were poor and they were powerless. Which tells us something. The significance of the church is not determined by its wealth or by its power. Right? It's not. These churches were shining brightly despite the fact that they were impoverished, and powerless. It reminds me of something that Jesus tried to teach his disciples and try to teach us, right? This is Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, and where Jesus is observing wealthy men putting their money in the offering plate. And it doesn't take too much imagination to think that maybe the disciples were looking on going, wow, those are big donors, like we we got to invite them to the banquet right got to make sure to get them there and pay special attention to them and but Jesus is unimpressed he's unimpressed with the wealth rather his attention is captured by a little old widow who walks up to the offering plate and puts in two coins worth hardly anything and then he's impressed and he smiles at something the world would not smile at he would say, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her po- poverty, put in all she had to live on, everything. A little widow who had nothing of really her own, basically, like, I'm all in. I trust you with my, my last two pennies. That's, that's, that's Smyrna and Philadelphia. Like, Jesus' encouragement to them, because there is no condemnation, no criticism, is like, listen, be faithful to death, and continue to hold on, hold fast. That is, they were demonstrating by their life that they trusted Christ enough that everything was in, all in, we're all in for you. Despite the fact that they were poor and they were powerless, their light was shining so brightly because they treasured what? Christ. When you treasure Christ more than your money and you treasure Christ more than power, it says something to the world. These lamps, though they were poor and they were powerless, were shining brightly. What motivated them, again, to conquer this, to overcome, and to continue even to the point of death? They treasured Christ, the glory of Jesus as our king, our judge, and our savior And they knew that the best was yet to come in the new creation. Third. The problem of moral and spiritual compromise that must be conquered. And here we come to the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira. Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Pergamum was the leading city of the area and the seat of power. Verse 14, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, and who, who, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food and sacrifice to idols and practice sexual immorality. Thyatira, very Thyatira, very similar. I know your works, your love, keep that word in your head, love, and faith and service and patient endurance, and your later works, and I think works of love, exceed the first. So this is kind of the opposite of Ephesus. Whereas they had love at the first and then lost it, these guys are actually excelling in love, verse 19. Then in verse 20, he goes on, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. And these are two Old Testament people um, who were, were enemies of Israel and seduced Israel to sin against God, uh, Jezebel and Balaam, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practical, practice sexual immorality and to eat food offered to idols. So you have idolatry and sexual immorality side by side in both of these letters. Both seduced by this entity called Balaam or Jezebel. Jezebel. So what he's saying is like, it's a good thing you're working hard. It's a good thing that you're enduring. But, you're making compromises to the world in your spiritual loyalties to Christ and also in your sexual immoralities. In other words, yes, they have a love, but there's something that's unholy about it in the sense that there is an unholy tolerance. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. This is a picture of spiritual compromise with the world, with the immorality of the world. And that's not good either. In other words, they weren't holding the line of orthodox morality and orthodox doctrine. They were compromising it. That too is, is not good. And tell me that this does not preach to today. It certainly does to me. I mean, we are surrounded by, I mean, we had massive legislation passed the House this week, which is going to have, I think, repercussions in the years ahead in terms of the church. Christians, there's tremendous pressure to buckle. No, we don't want to be lovelessly orthodox. We don't want to, to, to compromise the line either, do we? I mean, how do we really, I'm mean, just going to put this out there. Like, how are we to think about sexuality? How are we to think about gender? I mean, it's mentioned twice in here in both letters that that was part of the compromise. How are we to think about these things? How are we to form thoughts about them? As to what's right, what's wrong? Are we going to go with the consensus of psychologists? Are we going to go with the powerful and potent narratives put out there by Hollywood? Are we going to listen to the executive orders of our commander-in-chief? That is the question. For the Christian... It has always been the voice of our king and judge and savior, Jesus Christ, who has the right to determine those things. And the degree to which we are faithful to maintain the orthodoxy of his teaching is the degree to which we're being faithful and holding the line. So all of this pressure, and you feel it, I bet there are certain things you can't talk about at work, maybe shouldn't talk about at work. Because you know you'll be judged. The social pressure is there. It's out there. Some of you know the name Al Mohler. He's a historian and also the president of Southern Seminary. And he wrote a book called We Cannot Be Silent. And he spoke of the enormity of the pressure on the church today in this way. He said, the Christian church in the West now faces a set of challenges that exceeds anything has experienced in the past. We are facing nothing less than a comprehensive redefinition of life, love, liberty, and the very meaning of right and wrong. Jesus spoke to the church at Pergamum and Thyatira. He said, I have these things against you. You have accommodated yourself to the values of the culture around you, and there's strong terminology, I'm going to come and make war with them. This is a a, a warning to all of us to take this seriously. I mean, Jesus took it seriously. He had had no problem talking about sex, did he? He said, listen, if you look at a woman with a lustful intent, guess what? You've committed adultery with her. And he's just talking about the heart. You better to pluck out your eye and cast it from you. Like he's speaking in hyperbolic language, but nevertheless, he's saying you got to take this stuff seriously because it almost is, is always attached to idolatry in some way, shape, or form. Like in our culture, we don't go to a temple to Artemis or Aphrodite. No, we just worship at the altar of self-deification and the false belief that we have a right to determine who we are. Rather than listen to the word of our creator. So, think about this. How, 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 how balanced, maybe that's not the right word, these seven letters are. It's like condemns the, the Ephesian church or corrects the Ephesian church for this loveless orthodoxy. You can't give in to that. we got to love the world around us. At the same time, we can't, we can't have a spineless kind of love that has an unholy tolerance to it. You see? It speaks to both sides. And then last, the problem of spiritual self-deception. The church of Sardis And Laodicea. You'll notice the the self-deception in these texts behind me. It says, Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. There's no positive encouragement. This is coming out with a D minus, is kind of how it feels. I know your works, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. It's like you're on life support. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So they have a reputation for being alive. And perhaps they believe that reputation. We're alive because we have a good reputation in the community. And the next one, Laodicea, probably gets the worst, worst grades of them all. I know your works. You were neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. Um, So, because you were lukewarm and, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's a graphic word picture. For you say, and this is why they are lukewarm I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So there's this deception. Hey, we're rich, we don't need anything. We're self-sufficient. And Laodicea was a wealthy city. Perhaps the Christians were themselves wealthy, which is a form of self-deception. In fact, they're not rich, they are poor. Spiritually bankrupt. So here you have these two types of deception, of believing reports out there of who you are. We're really alive, right? We get, we get our churches in the newspaper all the time, headlines, because you know what? We feed the poor. We put on a bingo night, and we support battered women, and we paint over graffiti, all of which are good things. But if the heart and soul, devotion to Jesus and to his gospel have been compromised, which it seems that they have, then they're dead on the inside. You can all have all the trappings of religion on the outside, but if Christ has been removed from the center of your church and his gospel, then you're dying, you're dead, and you're on life support. Not too much longer, and you're not going to be a church anymore. That's the self-deception of believing what other people are saying about you. Just because you have a reputation for being alive doesn't mean you're actually alive. On the flip side... The Laodicean church, obviously, was wealth and blinded by their wealth and trusted in their wealth. They forgot the first cardinal rule of Christianity, and that is blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom. The first lesson of Christianity is recognizing I, I can do nothing apart from Christ. I am destined to a life of exile from God if it weren't for him. And they lost sight of that. There is an arrogance, a pride that comes from their wealth. And wealth doesn't have to do that to your life, but it has the potential of doing just that. And it's easy to think our church is doing well. Look at our finances. And there's nothing against finances and sound and all that stuff. It's part of our culture to use those things. I was in a church in Texas one time, and there's no judgment of this particular church. It was just awe-inspiring to me. It's like they had like a gymnasium that had eight full-court basketballs, courts inside. And then they had in their basement a full bowling alley. I've never seen anything like it. The church was massive. Big old pipe organ, of course, this is in Texas, right? Everything's big in Texas. And there's just a sense of, wow, this is awesome. And at some level, it was. But just because a church has lots of resources and lots of facilities doesn't necessarily mean it's alive. In this case, Jesus is seen standing outside the church, knocking. I stand at the door knock like he's not on the inside. They lost the center. They lost the centrality of Christ, their humility, and the truth of the gospel from the inside. And there's a great irony here, by the way, The Laodicean church that had so much thought they were so good and so rich. In fact, they were quite poor. Then there's the Smyrna church that was poor. But because they had Christ at the center and his gospel at the center, Jesus says, you are, in fact, rich. Kind of turns everything on its head, doesn't it? To see that God addressed, Jesus addresses the heart of the church. And the same things that they struggled with back then are the same things that we struggle with now. A lifeless orthodoxy of not depending or defining or identifying ourselves with how much power we have or how much wealth we have. Of not accommodating to the values and the immorality of the culture around us. And being self-aware that we are completely and utterly absolutely dependent upon the grace of God every day of every week of every month. Without that, there will be absolutely no humility, and we will be self-deceived. So why conquer these things? Well, because Jesus is our king, our judge, and our savior, and because the best is yet to come. So I don't know which of these has kind of knocked on the door of your heart, like, yeah, that's where I struggle. You might be someone who's really orthodox but not very loving. Well, God's speaking to you. Listen to what the Spirit says to the church. It might be that you have accommodated to culture too much and you realize, I I can't do that either. Well, that's the Spirit knocking on the door of your heart saying, listen, you need to to, to wake up. So I think uh, uh, it's a perfect time or, or place to enter into our time of communion. We have communion this morning. Um, and I'm going to do it a little bit differently than we're used to. Um, I'm going to have you just kind of take it on your own after a time of just reflection and meditation where I want you to answer some questions like, what would Jesus say to you? Which one of these letters like addresses where you're at or your family's at? You can pray with your family, um, or you can sit there and take this in silence by yourself. But before I leave you to that, let me just read this passage from Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. This keeps Christ and his gospel at the center um, You have the bread, you have the cup. Will you take just a couple of moments and just reflect, meditate, and also just ask yourself, how am I going to respond to these letters to the seven churches? And after a couple of minutes, uh, Emily is going to lead us in a final song. So celebrate communion together.